Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. So welcome to another episode of HashiCast. Today we have Ben Singleman, who's the CEO and co-founder of Lightstep. Lightstep is rethinking observability in this emerging world of microservices. Uh, he spent nine years at Google, where he led the design and development of several global scale monitoring systems. The most significant one that we, we all know, and there's a paper out for it, which is uh, Dapper. Uh, and then he also he also worked on Monarch, which is a highly available time series collection, storage, and query system. Uh, so welcome, Ben. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, I only kind of gave you a short introduction, so could you uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, thanks. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I mean, think that's a good summary of, of what I did at Google. Uh, my work um, after Google outside of Lightstep has also uh, gone in and out of the open tracing ecosystem, which is something we'll probably talk a bit about today. Uh, and that has exposed me to a bunch of other projects. Open tracing is a, is a project that by nature is kind of sprawling in what it touches. And so it's been a fascinating tour through everything that is related to microservice transactions. Yeah, that that uh, I'm super excited to talk about open spacing. I think Nick Nick has a great some great set of questions for you as well. Um, so one 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 thing that we're always interested in, especially with the guests that we have on the show, is like how did they get started in tech? How did you get into some something like tech? Were you always interested? Uh, tell us about like your journey uh, when you found technology. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I guess I was a pretty typical nerd as a kid, and I convinced my parents to get a personal computer in 1987 when I was seven and learned how to program in Logo and things like that. Then there was a kind of a quiet period where I didn't do anything uh, during high school uh, in, ter in terms of programming until Java was released when I was on Christmas break in 1996. And I got really excited about it and taught myself the rudiments of it and uh, and and got pretty deep into that towards the end of my time in high school. And so I went to college with the expectation that I would never do any computer science stuff. I thought I was going to be a philosophy major or something like that. But I took one class in computer science, and it was by far my favorite class. And so I took one the next semester, and it was still by far my favorite class until I realized that's really all I wanted to do. Uh, and I, I went to, um, uh, you know, I started college in 1999 when all the seniors were wallpapering their rooms as job offers. And then I graduated in 2003 post-crash when it was a struggle to find a place that would hire anybody. And, and I somehow weaseled my way into Google, which was, um, which was lucky, frankly, and, uh, and then had a, you know, a successful career there, mostly focused on distributed monitoring systems. Uh, I've always had a penchant for debugging and, and root cause analysis. It's always been interesting to me, so I gravitated towards that, uh, that work. And the only other thing I'll mention about that, which is sort of funny, is that I actually was originally working on ads at Google, which was not my cup of tea. And um, I had a 
they had this thing where they set up um, an opt-in system where they they would classify everyone who opted in by it was all engineers, but you got classified by like physically where you worked, how many years you'd been at Google, how many years you'd been out of college, what languages you worked in, etc. And then they'd match you up with the person who's literally the furthest from you. Euclidean distance was the furthest from you in this nine-dimensional vector space uh, of all these attributes. And so the person who was the opposite to me at Google was this woman, Sharon Pearl, who's a very distinguished researcher uh, who had come from DAC along with a bunch of other people um, like Jeff and Sanjay and all these luminaries at Google. And she was working on about four or five things. And I just talked with her about her projects, all of which were about, in my mind anyway, about a hundred times more interesting than what I was doing. And one of them was this prototype of this thing that she and Mike Burroughs and Luis Barroso were calling Dapper. And it, they never really got it to like deploy, but it sort of showed promise. And I was just like, that's so much more interesting than what I'm doing. My manager at the time had, I think, 120 direct reports. So he had no idea what I was doing. And I was just like, I'm going to do this instead. And so I did. And it was great. So that's, that is how I ended up in this world of, of distributed tracing. It, it literally was, was the opposite of what I was doing. I, I genuinely don't miss an opportunity to troll Java, but... Um, <laughs> is, um, is Java still a fond favorite? No, I mean, not at all. I, don't, I didn't exactly say it was a favorite. I guess maybe I implied that. I mean, Java, when it was released, was about applets, you know? And I, and I was just fascinated by the web, and I wrote this horrific, horrific piece of code without any guidance uh, from anybody. It was, a, it was a port of Asteroids, the video game, and I, I wrote it in Java over spring, over that Christmas break when Java was in beta or whatever. And I, was just, I just thought it was fun to write games in the browser. That's what I thought. Uh, and, and then I think Java gets trolled a lot. Um, I probably do some of the trolling myself. I don't really have any beef with Java as a language. I think that the ecosystem built around it um, is designed to protect people from themselves. And that was a decision that was made independent of the language in some ways. And I think that ecosystem can be very frustrating if you want to just, you know, get down to business and write a bunch of code. But I also appreciate what that's allowed. I mean, it, it, it allows large organizations to deploy lots of developers against a problem and, and feel like there, um, there, there are some guardrails on what they can, can and can't do. And I think that's the kind of the purpose of that ecosystem in many ways is to allow that to happen. And, and that's a different design goal than having people work as fast as possible, which is, you know, how a lot of people like to operate. And I guess how I like to operate at this point. That's my, my honest. I troll Java, but I, I've got no beef with it. I, I think it's a, it's a great language. And, and I actually wrote my first ever service in, in Java back in 2001 which was a, uh, a SOAP-based service. Now, SOAP, I do have a big beef with, but we can we can save that for another podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I, I think just adding to this, you know, this Java thread that we have going here, um, my, uh, my start to Java was very similar to Ben's. Uh, I got into it in high school. Uh, in, in India, uh, they get you in, into programming like grade five, grade six, uh, and it's like a mandatory like course that you have to take. Uh, and it, yeah, I, to be honest, like I learned Java the hard way. So I, there was no IDE allowed. I used, we would use Notepad to write everything. Like you weren't able to, you, you weren't allowed to copy any code from like any other, you know, person. You had to write everything like all the way from like the, you know, stream readers to like 
all the output statements with you know everything like so that was my that was my learning learning curve of java so it was pretty hard to you know i would say i learned java the hard way uh, and then you know just use the compiler to to run it and then you know took hours and hours to to even get something out but yeah uh, it wasn't fun <laughs> You mentioned Notepad, and I, I promise we can get to talking about other things, but just as a sort of a way back when kind of story, the thing to express just how bad the code I wrote in high school actually was, I never really figured out like how to use different files. And so I want everything to be in one file. I didn't understand that you had one public class per file and until I hit the fact that I was using Notepad to write this code. And you can only have 32 kilobytes of code in one, in one Notepad. <laughs> and so I tried to save it, and it wouldn't let me. It wouldn't let me add the character when I got past 32K. And so that's the reason I discovered how you name different files. So anyway, I feel you on writing Java and Notepad. It definitely forces you to, to really understand the syntax. It doesn't help you at all, that's for sure. There is one major benefit to writing Java and Notepad, though. <laughs> Clips doesn't crash every 30 seconds. <laughs> oh my God. Fair point. Uh, okay, okay, moving moving on. So it's it's so let's switch gears and kind of talk about the the work at uh, that you did at Google. Um so you know, you spend a substantial amount of time uh, working on distributed systems um and and it seems like that that uh, you work at Google has kind of left a mark on your, you know, on your career and which which has led you to, to bring this work to and this technology and the ideas that were built at Google to, you know, to, to the masses uh, in, in a way. And why do you think, uh, you know, this observability space today is, is, is this hot topic of discussion and a lot of people are, are talking about the space and it clearly is something that interests you. So uh, why do you think what has changed in, you know, in the recent times that have made it like this hot topic of discussion? That's a good question. Uh, and definitionally, it's hard for me. I, I still don't know exactly what observability means. I mean, of course, I have my own definition, and I won't attempt to inflict my definition on other people. But I think we all at least know what you're describing as a trend. My sense is that uh, people are more interested in it because it's more interesting now. <laughs> and it's more interesting because it's gotten a lot harder. That's my my really short narrative. The reason it's gotten harder, uh, of, I think, somewhat obviously, is that the systems we're building are getting more complex. And I actually would distinguish that from a lot of people talk about microservices or serverless or whatever. I, I think that's certainly related. Uh, but the reason people are building microservices and serverless um, is because the software has gotten so complex that you need a lot of developers writing it. And if you have hundreds or thousands of developers on a code base, it's really not reasonable to have them all working on one binary uh, and it to me it's more about uh, human communication and um, and uh, and a need to decouple software complexity than it is necessarily about a particular buzzword or architecture so I think complexity and and the power of that software is the driver for all of this trend this entire trend so even if we in a couple of years, we're, we're writing this code in a different framework or with a different buzzword. I, I think the thing that you can't run away from is the power and the complexity of the software has increased. And with that, the need to observe it has, has grown and the difficulty of observing it has also grown significantly. So, so you know, TLDR, I think people 
spend time talking about things that they're interested in. And people are usually interested in things that are difficult. And it's difficult because it's gotten, it's literally more complicated. The software is more complicated. That, that makes sense. As we transition into this like world of microservices, now there's like functions as a service and there's cluster schedulers involved. And then, then there's like, you know, all these like standalone container deployment systems. And yeah, so I, I think it's as what you're describing is it's absolutely correct. But like the complexity of the moving pieces, there's so many of them now. So what do you think has changed in terms of tooling? You know, like we've had this traditional poll, like, you know, polling based, uh, you know, monitoring systems and, and, and very traditional systems. What has changed to support this ecosystem um, uh, to actually empower developers to, to get insights into this complex world, right? Yeah, I think there are three changes I would highlight. One is that the... Um, Ordinary transactions, and by I mean transactions in the most general sense of the word, I don't mean like purchases per se, but ordinary transactions and systems do very complicated things. Like the average case transaction that you see uh, in a microservices architecture is traversing dozens of different services before it comes back to the end user. And so if you want to tell even the most basic story about that transaction, uh, doing that without observing it along its journey is almost infeasible, I think. So that's one change. Um, The second one is that the uh, amount of data being generated by these systems, whether it's polling-based monitoring with time series data or distributed tracing or conventional logging, it doesn't really matter. But the amount of data being generated, it's always been proportional to the transaction volume. So as a particular application has more users or more workload, you'd expect more monitoring data, and that's fine because uh, it will scale out. But you have this, that is being multiplied by the number of services. Because if you have many services touching these requests, you at least need to register that the service was involved with the request in some way. So you have, it's not perfectly linear, but you have like a, an almost linear multiplier on the amount of data being generated uh, proportional to the number of services or, you know, fast functions you're running or whatever you want to call it. And so there's this data volume multiplier, which messes the ROI equation out quite a bit, since a lot of the the expense of these systems is often proportional to the data volume, your return on the investment is not getting higher, but your investment is getting higher. And so that messes up ROI for a lot of tooling people have used. And then the third thing, which is related to the data volume, but it's kind of a different play on it, is that from a cognitive standpoint and from a... uh, a perceptual, human perceptual standpoint, the amount of data that's being generated can't be consumed by a human being. The signal to noise is so low that, you know, what we'd see at Google is that we were able to give people dashboards that had five or 600 metrics on them. And that actually contained all the information they needed, but it was overwhelming. And the uh, sifting through that and finding um, the causal relationships rather than just the correlative relationships with time series data has become uh, quite difficult for, for operators. So, so the three things, again, I think, you know, you do need to understand distributed transactions. The amount of data has increased so vastly that it's breaking the ROI on a bunch of tools. And then human operators can't use uh, workflows designed for single processes or single services uh, effectively uh, across distributed systems because of the information overload. Yeah, I think I think the consumption's definitely a problem. Like to to look at these dashboards and all this like information, uh, all this information just thrown at you, and you you like how do you correlate these things? And and this always have been. It's, I think this was a problem in, even in traditional systems, uh, and, and now it's just you know just magnified to like you know hundred x or whatever. 
And I feel like one of the things I, I yeah. found which was interesting was I think a project done by Netflix, which was visceral, uh, which was, it was amazing. Like I read the blog post and it was all based on like this human feeling of like looking at the dashboard and have an intuition is like something is not right. And it's all about like how you go about, you know, checking how, if you are okay as, as you know, like your body's doing okay. So it was, it was very similar. It was inspired by this, you, you know, this, this uh, idea of like humans, you know, checking and doing health check on themselves and then being, being able to showcase that with like a really good visual uh, and I, I would encourage, you know, listeners to check that project out. It's pretty awesome. Uh, so let's switch gears to uh, uh, and talk about open tracing. And we've been, you know, we've been teasing this throughout the podcast. So I'm a big fan of uh, open tracing. And I remember when it was announced, I, I was super excited. I read the spec and then saw these uh, these other tools that that actually use and are inspired by open tracing and use the spec. Uh, so what was the motivation behind, you know, creating uh, an open standard for, you know, application tracing? And, and also talk about in general, like, how do standards like open tracing help our technology, technology industry today as just as a whole? Yeah, this is a great question. There is actually a call this morning uh, with the Open Tracing Specification Council. It's a public call, but uh, Couchbase did a great presentation this morning, which I'd encourage people to watch on why they've adopted open tracing internally uh, within their code base, within their open source code base, as a means of understanding some pretty complex issues they have with uh, timeouts in their client SDKs. And what what they touched on and uh, is very closely related to why we started the project, it actually started off with a workshop that uh, was led by uh, Adrian Cole, uh, who is the lead Zipkin maintainer, getting a bunch of folks in the room, mostly end users of tracing uh, at various companies. Um, Netflix wasn't there per se, but a lot of companies like that were people doing um, sophisticated things, distributed tracing, whether it's Zipkin or otherwise. Uh, and we were all just sitting in a room and you know, a lot of the presentations we were giving were about analytical features, but the, the kind of hallway conversation is mostly about how difficult it was to get organizational adoption for instrumentation. And there's this uh, pyramid of need for distributed tracing where if you don't have the instrumentation, nothing else actually works. Like none of the cool traces or the cool analytical capabilities really matter unless you have decent instrumentation. And so we had all these people simultaneously, literally simultaneously instrumenting the same libraries with the same semantic thing over and over and over again. And a bunch of us decided to just see whether we could start something to solve that. So we called it DCP, which stood for distributed context propagation. And that's really what open tracing is as a project. It's, it's a common way of describing how distributed context is propagated. And while you're doing that, you take some timing records as you enter and exit certain services and you tag things and so on and so forth. But open tracing is is very narrow in terms of its intended scope. It's, it's designed to be a general purpose, vendor neutral way to describe transactions in distributed systems. And the reason that's important is that unlike almost anything else, it needs to be standard across the entire stack. I mean, all the way, ideally from your mobile and web clients, all the way down to the the bottom of the stack and the database layer, you need to have a common way of describing the transaction. And if you don't, it's not possible to get a common view of this transaction. So open tracing could have been a broader project where we tried to also write a language runtime and a tracing collection system and so on and so forth. My sense when we started the project was that even just literally standardizing the description of the transaction was going to be a sprawling, sprawling effort because it touches basically every language people are using for 
microservices and similar technologies, um, as well as uh, um, this just sprawling diaspora of frameworks and, and open source projects that interface with those microservices. And that's enough surface area for one project for sure. So we scoped it at that. There, I think one of the confusing things about tracing in general is that the word tracing is being used to refer to many, many different things. I tend to think there's a great article that Erica Arnold from New Relic wrote, uh, which was published a couple of weeks ago, which I definitely recommend people reading. It's called, um, you know, the difference between tracing, tracing, and tracing. And it goes to describe uh, the TLDR is there's describing transactions, which was the open tracing does. There's um, the actual act of writing an SDK runtime that collects all that data and sends it somewhere, which is a type of tracing. And then there's the analytical capabilities of a tracing system uh, like Zipkin or Jaeger or my company, Lightstep or whatever, um, which they're all called tracing. They're completely different activities. And open tracing is absolutely focused on the first one, pure and simple. We describe transactions. And I consider that to be the area where there is a need for real standardization cooperation between many different constituencies. And so it's really a standardization effort. It's not a traditional open source project where we have a lot of IP. It's, it's about standardization and, and, and coming up with a common layer for people to call and implement. So when I wrote um, my book last year, well, my year before when I started it on, on microservices, open tracing was, was still like pretty much almost non-existent. I mean, Zipkin was kind of floating around a little bit, but but it basically kind of like transactional tracing was very, very much vendor specific. Um, and I'm, I, I, from what you were just talking about, about the open tracing, the fact that it's vendor neutral, it's kind of language neutral, is really, really important. Now, in lieu of me not writing anything about open tracing back then, maybe you can kind of give us a, a developer's 101. So you've kind of touched on the, the the fact that transactions help you look at sort of causation, but but also where the problems are occurring in your code base. But as a developer, like how do I use open tracing? What do I do? Do I just pick up a library and, and start implementing it in my code? It's a great question. I, I think the most important thing to understand about tracing in general as a developer is that most of the tracing is not in the code that you write. It's that you, you know, I don't know if you're using Python and you depend on Flask or if you're using Java and you depend on DropWizard or whatever. Um, most of the tracing is actually happening in packages and libraries that you depend on. And the reason why open tracing is valuable to you is that it probably already instruments those libraries and dependencies that you have. And if you don't, if you fail to instrument one handoff point in your entire distributed application, then the trace is broken and it doesn't deliver that much value. So the, re- the main reason people adopt open tracing is to have coverage of those dependencies. Um, having done that, of course, you can also use open tracing to decorate your application code in a way that uh, introduces, in, you know, an incredibly small dependency, like open tracing per se doesn't uh, bring in anything more than a couple thousand lines of code tops. And, it, it, you know, and that's an appealing uh, decoupling from a developer standpoint. And then it also gives you some optionality down the track. You know, if you decided to use Zipkin today and Jaeger tomorrow or vice versa, that doesn't affect your instrumentation. And although that may not seem like a big deal as you're writing the code over the, over the course of years, all code, be, you know, Kelsey Hightower has a nice uh, line about, you know, code is legacy as soon as it gets committed. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think that the, the code that you're writing um, is going to live on for a long time. And you do not want your instrumentation 
to couple the maintainers of that code to any particular decision you made. And I would uh, I'd also further say there are some really interesting projects. This project Glue, GL, oh, sorry, um, that's the newer project, the project Squash from uh, Solo.io and Edith Levine. She wrote this pretty awesome distributed debugger that uses open tracing as its hook to get into and out of breakpoints and things like that. So it doesn't just enable tracing, it's really describing the transaction in ways that can be used for many things. Um, certainly uh, classic distributed tracing, waterfall timing diagrams, but also many other things. And that's what you're opting yourself into for your own code. So does does open tracing make uh, replace things like the standard sort of metrics, like for example, if you're using StatsD or something like that, do I do I kind of keep my StatsD and then literally kind of add an extra layer of augmentation with open tracing, or can open tracing give me enough that I can I don't need to worry about those um, individual kind of disconnected metrics anymore? That's a really good question. And speaking of legacy code being legacy at the time of commit, I wonder if this will be a legacy podcast. I have to be careful about what I say now versus what will be true in a couple of years. Uh, open tracing right now uh, is is not intended in any way to replace StatsD. Uh, the, um, I shouldn't say in any way. There are times when I think all of us have written code where, at least if you're using tracing and metrics and logging, where something happens, you know, a request comes in, you're like, well, I should record it in my metrics and I should add the distributed tracing span and I should, oh, I should also log it because we have this log thing that needs that. So you write these three lines of code that semantically say exactly the same thing, which is that I just received a request. That feels wrong to me. <laughs> you know, I don't think that people should continue doing that. Uh, and what we do see almost invariably is once people move over to adopting distributed tracing, the, um, the, the tracing instrumentation will multiplex out to a tracing system and also into some kind of metrics aggregator. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's healthy. You know, Lightstep's approach is to unify those as well. And, and, and I think that makes sense. Um, that said, there are things, I think the classic example would be gauges, things like CPU usage or memory usage on a per-process basis. Those sorts of things are not transactional, and there's no place to describe them in a transaction except as just an annotation on every transaction, and at the moment are better served by uh, a dedicated metrics collection system, whether that's a StatsD kind of thing or Prometheus or whatever. And um, I think it's less likely that open tracing would attempt to uh, solve that problem. It feels orthogonal to me. I know like Datadog themselves, I think, have... Um I'm sure I looked at when I was looking through their SDK the last time. They've got some some stuff in there which is um, adopting open tracing as as a standard for like APM metrics, but but also you you still get those traditional um, like metrics, as you say, like the gauges, which is which is really interesting. But so I think like you've mentioned um, Zipkin and Jaeger and and Dapper, like an open tracing. Where do these all fit together in, in the ecosystem? Really good question. So I would once again recommend Erica's write-up because I think it, it addresses that head-on. Uh, it also links to a talk I gave uh, at a workshop in Seattle a couple of months ago, which um, has a, a diagrammatic way of describing the surface area for tracing and, and then maps different projects onto that framework. So it explains open tracing, which shows up as this tiny little blip. It has this one problem that it focuses on, and that's it. And then there are pro projects like Zipkin, which cover, you know, there are pure Zipkin open uh, 
open source instrumentation libraries that are divorced from open tracing all the way through a collection system, through an analysis system, through a UI. You know, they cover all these bases. And then there are projects like X-Ray at Amazon, which, um, which have their own surface area. It's probably more than I can do to describe this in this call, but uh, the really short version, at least about Zipkin and Jaeger and Dapper, uh, rel- relative to open tracing. Open tracing is a way of describing transactions, and you can describe having described those transactions, they can be sent to Zipkin, they can be sent to Jaeger, uh, they can't be sent to Dapper because that's proprietary. But um, but Zipkin and, and Jaeger both derive from Dapper's data model, and to a certain extent, open tracing does as well. And we had Paul Dix on the show last time, um, and we were talking about Influx, and and he was saying that that InfluxDB is going to start supporting and, um, well, the whole tick stack is going to start supporting open tracing or, or maybe it already does. I, I've, I forget um, where it is in the kind of the production readiness, but that, that's kind of important. Like where, where, do we, where do we go? I mean, like to, to store and interrogate this stuff. I mean, this is probably actually a really good opportunity for you to get a plug in with uh, Lightstep as well. But like... You know, recording the data and emitting it is one thing, but then then there is the, the the interrogation and the storage. What are the products for? So it's a great question, and uh, I don't want to put words in Paul's mouth since you know I'm I'm not him. I think he's great, and I my understanding, which could be. Uh, inaccurate is that part of what Influx is doing is actually instrumenting InfluxDB with open tracing, which is a really interesting thing. This is the same thing that Couchbase has done and CockroachDB has done as well. And I think there's even an effort to instrument Postgres itself with open tracing. What that does is that if you have, if you're using Influx as part of an actual application you're building and that application isn't performing well and you want to understand why, rather than seeing that, oh, this Influx query takes a long time and that being the end of <laughs> the answer you get, you can actually trace from your application stack all the way into Influx and back and see all the details of it. This was massively valuable at Google in that we could see into Bigtable, we could see into GFS and successor Colossus, and you could actually visualize why your query is expensive. And you could see, oh, I see. So when I make this type of query, I have to scan from these 45 different machines in serial. Well, no wonder it's slow. You know, like that, that kind of thing can be self-explanatory if you have tracing that extends into your storage system or uh, query system, but uh, those sorts of semantics just appear as a, a long query if you don't have that visibility. So I think what's so cool about the open tracing integration into these storage systems is that the users of them can can query uh, from their application down into their dependencies uh, in a single trace, and and that that's profound I think in terms of what it allows you to do, and it really changes the game for um, for the the use and optimization of these rather complex storage and query evaluation systems that people are building. Um, now, as far as Influx as a place to store tracing data, I, I literally don't know the, the current state of the art, and I wouldn't want to misstate it. Uh, so I, I shouldn't offer too much of an, an opinion there, but I'm certainly excited to hear about that. So yeah, so when I was building um, production systems, it, it felt like that about 90% of the time I was dealing with a problem in a data store and then I'd have to kind of like dig in running like either query optimization or like switching slow query logging on and, and stuff like that. Being able to get that transactional history to, to see like the query execution plan or the fact that the data is getting pulled from a number of shards, which, which could be like globally distributed 
that's incredible. I mean, that's game changing when it comes to um, performance debugging an application. I agree, and I, you know, I, I didn't take the bait earlier to plug Lightstep, but I will now because this is um, something that I think is really important. Uh, Dapper uh, was designed a long time ago, and you know, it was designed really in two thousand three, two thousand four. I picked it up at the end of two thousand four and built it out into a production system. But it was a first cut, uh, and it was a first cut. Uh, that is showing its age. And I think it's incredibly important not to tie ourselves to that approach to tracing. The, um, where I'm going with this is that, you know, let's say you're debugging exactly what you just described. So you have some kind of uh, latency issue that has to do with, with what's ultimately a bottleneck in a storage system. I think, as you, as you said yourself, and I agree with you, that explains a lion's share of production emergencies around performance. And the observation I'd make more generally, even beyond storage systems, is that most latency issues are actually throughput issues. So the latency issue is that you're hitting, your, your request is hitting some resource that is under provision for the load that it's receiving. And the question then becomes, where is that load coming from? And this is this is really really important. So I, I think I'll I'll reemphasize that that most latency issues are due to the fact that some shared resource is receiving more load than it can handle. And at that point, the emergency is only resolvable if you figure out where the load is coming from. And doing that is a different sort of distributed tracing problem. If you look at a single transaction trace, which is what we did with Dapper, you can identify pretty easily where the bottleneck. Um, is forming like you can see the queuing problem in the form of a of a span and a trace that's totally outlying what's normal that can be done but figuring out where the new load is coming from is still answerable via distributed traces but it's not in that one trace it's all the other traces that are contending for that resource and where they came from that's the question you need to answer and if we use the type of implementation we have with dapper it's not possible because of the sampling approach we took with dapper and i think again emphasizing why i think it's crucially important that open tracing has as little code in it as possible literally as little as possible it allows us to uh, to have some forwards compatibility with systems that actually can do that real-time analysis of where load is coming from in a distributed system. So the ideal thing that you see there is, you know, let's say you have um, uh, a simple producer-consumer app uh, and the producers and the consumers are both sharing a database and you're looking at the consumer side of things and things get very slow. Perhaps the issue is that some new experiment is happening with some microservice run by the producers that's going haywire and is sending way too much data to the database. There's no reason that your observability system shouldn't be able to isolate that the slowness is due to an overwhelming amount of traffic from this other service. And that's all in the distributed tracing data. But if you restrict yourself to front sampled single transaction traces, you will not find it. And it's very, very important that these tracing standards that we're adopting allow us to build these sorts of other approaches to debugging these problems. They end up saving you an enormous amount of time and pain uh, and effort, but, but we will miss them. <laughs> if we use Dapper's implementation, we would miss those applications. So I think it's important that, that we, uh, we keep these transaction description APIs as thin as possible to allow for these sorts of capabilities, which is where I think the industry is headed. So it's interesting. So there's there's kind of two problems. I mean, one is resource utilization. So you might be running like 100% on a CPU or a number of CPUs, but, but actually resource contention 
can be can be just as bad. I mean, if you if you take a table lock or something like that, and it, it can block every other process. Now that table lock might be using zero I/O in terms of CPU or memory or or, or network, but it's it, it's stopping all other processes because it's a it's a deadlock. So if I was using Lightstep, how assuming I've got full application tracing with open tracing, what would be the typical process I'd go through using the tool to, to, to at first identify that I've maybe got a problem and then to, to dig deep and find the source of it? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that the, there's a talk I gave at Monitorama last year. So in 2017, where I literally showed this same scenario you're describing, where there's a mutex lock that is highly contended. And uh, as, as you accurately pointed out, it doesn't even necessarily mean you're using a lot of CPU. You just might have someone holding the lock for too long. And then we, we debug that scenario uh, using um, a tool that's able to uh, analyze where the contention is coming from in the system. And so I think that that's the thing I'd really want people to look at because there's a visual description of it and it shows what that looks like. Um, but, uh, but the basic approach should, you know, first things first, figure out that the requests that you care about are slow because they're hitting this contended resource. That's actually not terribly difficult with, with any kind of distributed tracing system. That, that should be easy to find. And then the second piece is having identified that particular aspect of the system, um, doing a real-time analysis of where the load is coming from. And that's something that, uh, those are both of those workflows are things that can be done in Lightstep. Uh, and that's, that's the workflow that we would see um, our users going through. But uh, I, I, I like the um, I like the idea of generalizing um, uh, the sort of I think you put it past by generalizing contention analysis is something that we should be uh, able to do with this distributed tracing instrumentation and uh, and I feel very uncomfortable uh, plugging Lightstep too much that is certainly the type of thing that our product team thinks a lot about I'll put it that way don't don't feel bad about it don't, we um we we're happy for people to talk about great products. I try to maintain a, a separation between uh, open tracing and Lightstep, and I'm really here mainly with my open tracing hat on, and, and I get really excited. Like the Couchbase people are using Jaeger the entire time, and I was so excited to see that. I think Jaeger is an awesome project uh, with really great developers, and, and, and I think it, it deserves the awesome place it has in the ecosystem too. So, so with my open tracing hat on, I, I never want to seem too conflicted around Lightstep, although I, I certainly think about this stuff all the time for Lightstep as well. Well, we're going to link to your talk um, in in the podcast because I, I think that would be a great thing for people to review and and, and take a look at. But I, I personally recommend people check out Lightstep. I'm I'm actually a fan of of kind of SaaS based application monitoring. I I kind of the last thing I want when I'm managing a system is is having to deal with my monitoring and and, and tracing. But it, I suppose it depends what you're doing, right? I mean, it, there's there's different. Um, Different applications for different different needs, but um, yeah, don't feel bad about plugging Lightstep. I, I think there's a there's always a need for great products in the industry, and you know, open source is awesome, but sometimes we do just have to put our hands in our pocket and, and pay for some stuff. Let's look at the future. So I'm going to look at like a real, real long time in the future in the terms of tech. I'm talking a whole five years. So if I look five years back. So my idea of um, of, lo- of of sort of monitoring and metrics five years ago was was probably grepping log files. Um, I I hadn't really sort of encountered um, like StatsD or or anything really meaningful. Um, it was 
you know, personal knowledge. I'm not, I'm not saying the industry, but in the next five years, where do you think we are? So we've kind of like, we, we've taken the individual metrics. We've realized it's not enough. We know we need transactions. We need to be able to look at contention. We need to look at like every, every sort of component part of the system to identify where, where the problems are. Where do you think we'll be in five years? Do you think it'll, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say self-healing, but maybe something around monitoring or alerting or early warning or... Great question. I definitely think a lot about this. So first of all, maybe briefly, I'll just say where I think we'll be developing applications. Uh, until, uh, since to tie it back to what we started with, talking about Java, uh, I think... Um, as, as much as um, it'll, a little part of me will die when we do this, I, I think that we need to make microservices really boring, really, really boring, and really easy to write and deploy. Uh, that piece has to happen as well as all this monitoring stuff. Right now, I think, unfortunately, you have to be pretty smart and pretty experienced both. Uh, to make this stuff really work in production. That's literally changing by the month. I think a lot of the stuff being developed and deployed right now across the ecosystem around Kubernetes and so on, um, not to mention all the great work that companies like HashiCorp are doing, that that work is essential. I mean, until this stuff is... Um, is easy enough to protect our to protect us from ourselves and our inexperience. I don't think um, we'll be able to see the sort of adoption of everything else that we need. So that's the first thing. But I feel very confident that that's going to happen. Now, what we find ourselves in is a place like I described earlier: the amount of data we're generating and the complexity of the data. Um, they're both in a very different category than how things were a couple of years ago or even today. And what I anticipate is that we'll we'll see people. Um, They'll have to abandon this effort to uh, proactively enumerate all of the possible failure modes to their system. That's the biggest trend I think is going that we're going to see. I, I still see people. I think when you had one monolith, you actually could write a metric for every failure mode and have them all in a dashboard. And now you can maybe squint and think you can do that. It might even be possible to literally do it, but you'll never be able to comprehend that information because there's too much of it. As the failure modes are so elaborate and so numerous with all the interdependencies. It's not feasible. So I think what we're going to see, people will have to psychologically let go of that impulse. And instead, we'll see people using metrics the way they should be used, which is to describe the symptoms you care about. And there aren't actually that many of those. These are your SLAs to, your, to the consumers of whatever you're writing, whether it's the top of the stack or the bottom of the stack. You have, you have consumers of your service or you wouldn't be writing it. And they have some kind of SLA, informal or otherwise. And you need to measure that. So metrics should continue to be used for that. I would argue for that and that alone. I think everything else is about root causing issues with those symptoms. That piece needs to be turned on its head. I think it needs to be dynamic. I think using metrics to do that is a little bit insane because the cardinality requirements just blow up in your face and, and you can't actually get a decent ROI from that approach. And this is why things like tracing have have um, have sprung up really as different approaches to root cause the symptoms people care the most about. So what I anticipate is what I hope for, frankly, is a separation in the discussion between symptom measurement and root cause analysis. I would love to hear people stop talking about logging metrics and tracing as being the three pillars of anything. Those are all implementation details. The only thing that matters, symptom measurement, root cause analysis. 
That's it. And you use logging and metrics and tracing to do both of these activities in certain ways, but we should not confuse implementation for use cases. And those are the only two use cases that matter. So I think what we'll see is symptom measurement will become very focused and very high precision. And then root cause analysis is going to have to be dynamic and cannot involve foreknowledge of what you're going to find. It must be exploratory. So do you think we need maybe there's a Maybe it's, I don't know whether it's a cultural or an educational change in the industry rather than a technological one to, 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 to achieve that. Do people, rather than just kind of like throwing metrics at random points that in a system where, because they're cheap when you've got a, a certain amount, but as you say, as the more metrics you've gotten, you have the problem with the cardinality. But do you think we maybe need to be thinking more about failure, maybe designing for failure, but to kind of get that layer right to of of where the where you want to be kind of looking and augmenting and monitoring yes <laughs> definitely I, I really i think like everyone i'm a big fan of the chaos monkey work and what gremlin is doing and things like that i i think it's really important to be pretty creative when you're imagining all the ways what you're what you're building can break uh, a high level system design standpoint i think trying to measure all all of them in advance is unrealistic uh you know, the security world could probably learn a bit from this too, right? It's very difficult to predict all of the different ways that security can be violated. And, and um, it's, it's, it's a, certainly a, a common challenge for anyone trying to observe a system for any purpose. But yeah, I think that's totally, uh, I, I'm fully, fully supportive of people being as creative as possible when they're designing a system to think about these failure modes, if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, it is. And I, and I think this is interesting too. So you, you brought up Gremlin and, and I, I love Gremlin. I am, my buddy Austin works, works over there. Um, and, and this is interesting, right? So do we start changing the way we're looking at things, right? So, so I'm going to propose to you a new development workflow. So I'm going to write code. I'm going to write TDD. I'm going to do, you know, unit tests and functional tests. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of get my layers right. And I'm going to write good quality code. I'm going to have an abstract idea on how that's going to behave, which is going to be kind of experience driven. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop. Once I get something that's runnable, I'm going to run some chaos tests on it. So I'm going to run Gremlin at that code and I'm going to brute force discover where the fragility is. Um, fragility, is that the right word? Well, anyway, and from that, I can then understand the areas that I need to be concerned about, maybe improve our, or augment with, with um, tracing metrics and things like that. Do you, do you think that could be a kind of a workflow that we move towards? So we end up having, rather than just like a unit test functional test, we actually have a unit test functional test chaos test. And that becomes part of the, the, the kind of the development workflow cycle of before we even get code pushed, maybe even to Git. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. The, the thing that I would add on to that, and I, I, I love that vision, is... Um, a lot of uh, a lot of us, I think, want to think that bugs in our code are due to just genuine logic errors, and of course that happens. I, I write them uh, every time I sit down to write code. I'm sure I make that mistake. But unfortunately, the types of issues that are really pernicious and, you know, the logic errors can be caught by unit tests, but the ones that are really pernicious are more artifacts of workloads. Um, 
And even if you have the wherewithal to stand up a full staging version of your entire infrastructure, that staging setup will almost never properly approximate the workload of your production setup. And so the thing that's so unfortunate and the reason why CICD and things like that, uh, I think, are essential um, is, is that the the problems that really keep you up at night are, are workload dependent and thus are only discoverable in production, I think. And that's why I think having some kind of deployment strategy that involves both um, obviously some kind of canary deployment where you can catch problems early and, and roll back before it becomes a catastrophe. But also as part of that deployment, I think it makes a lot of sense to, to plan ahead for the types of failures this new version of software is supposed to be resilient to and actually test that, unfortunately, in production. But if you if you write the code correctly, that should be fine, you know? And if and if the testing framework is sophisticated enough, it should catch even with a single request not working correctly, it should be able to roll back this experiment and tell you to fix your code before it proceeds. I, I think that vision is, is attainable. And I, I, I would, you know, certainly say that most issues in production um, are due to some form of release, whether it's a new piece of code or a new experiment or whatever. It's, it's rarely um, anything else. So, so being, having more rigor around the testing on these releases is something that makes a lot of sense, I think, to anyone who's operating the system. Ben, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on HashiCast. Really, really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to, to come and talk to us. It's been super interesting. It's been a true pleasure. Great questions, and and I'm happy to come back anytime. It's fun. You are welcome anytime, but maybe not after I have asked the final question. Or Mishra, do you want to ask the final question? Sure, I can can ask the final question. So, Ben, if you were in a popular band, uh, who would you be and why? A popular music band, to be clear. Popular, that makes it much harder. Uh, Can I I be in an unpopular band? That allow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's easy. So I, I recently got uh, really into music from Cape Verde, which is this weird archipelago off the west coast of Africa, like way out there in the middle of the Atlantic, and they have this kind of like. Uh, uncharacterizable blend which I'm going to try and characterize of Portuguese music and Caribbean music and African music and I want to be a backup guitarist in one of those bands. That's all I want. I just want to sit there and play rhythm guitar and keep hearing a band from the 1970s. If you guys can figure out a way to do that, I'm going to quit my job and go back and do that. I'd literally, I don't have to think about this twice. I'd be Kurt Cobain. Like, obviously without the incident with at the end of his career, but like, yeah, yeah, 100% for sure. Mishra, who, who would, who would, who, who, what, who and why? <laughs> I would, I would be, well, I'm a big Coldplay fan. Uh, and I know I'll, uh, this is a bit controversial to talk about, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, uh, my, I, I would be Johnny Bucklin, who's like the lead guitarist in Coldplay, which basically people don't know, you know, him, that, that well versus you know Chris Martin who's like the lead singer and everyone knows him uh, but yeah I would be Johnny because he's like super awesome super talented but so humble and modest we can start a band it would be a Cape Verdean uh, band with yeah Coldplay and Kurt Cobain all together it'll be perfect we should totally do that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be eclectic Ben, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you again. And thank you so much. And we would love to have you back sometime. So we'll like keep your eyes on your email. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much. You've been listening to HashiCast with your hosts, 
Mishra and Nick. Today's guest has been Dan Siegelman from Lightstep. Be sure to tune in next time.